Hey everyone, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. This week we're talking about Scott Cook. He is the founder of Intuit, the man behind TurboTax. Find out about how he borrowed money from his father to create his company, how he believes that the countries using return-free tax filing are crazy, and why his entire family's equestrians. All that and more this week on Grubstakers. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in dynasty. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway... Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I am Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined by my friends... Yogi Polywall. Steve Jeffries. And uh, this week, we're talking about Scott Cook, billionaire founder of Intuit, TurboTax, all that we're going to get right into. But first, up top, we just want to say... Uh, we heard your feedback about the crosstalk. That's right. That's so right. So we fired Andy Palmer. That, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we tricked him into signing an agreement, uh, diluting his shares in the podcast by saying it was a purchase order for a Mustang guitar. <laughs> we said that uh, economist David Harvey needs us to sign this before mm-hmm, he'll agree to come mm-hmm. on the podcast. He completely cut himself out of the podcast and we have now only got to split the patreon three ways i mean the the drops were fine but when he brings his guitar in it's like <laughs> come on man you know i you went through the subway with a guitar <laughs> just so you could play this song well, on the show he also agreed to mandatory arbitration yeah. <laughs> so we protect your you know we just protect yourselves yes we also heard the uh, feedback about the mispronunciations but firing andy won't do anything about that no, so no, we're, we can't do anything about that mm-hmm. it's here to stay but I did just want to say, like, essentially, up top, before we get into this, uh, the, the mission of this podcast, we have the trade-off between the actual week-to-week grind of making this podcast about billionaires, but then there is also the long-term goal in my head, and I think in all our heads, is we want to create, essentially, an audio archive of billionaires. Mm-hmm. The idea is that when we're when we're done with this, I would like it for 20 years from now for historians to be able to go through a database of billionaires and say, why are they playing so many fucking drops? <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> why Why can't this guy pronounce a spirit decor? <laughs> oh, he just did it again. Uh, 20 years. You think the world's going to be around 20 years and yeah. people will still be listening to this show? It is going to be awkward when like, we go from like 2,000 billionaires that we got to get done to the hyperinflation hits. <laughs> and suddenly we've got, cover like, everyone. Yeah, we've got 100,000 people on the docket. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the show that keeps growing. Guys, we're doing 20 episodes a day going through the phone book <laughs> to cover all of the billionaires in the post-societal like, currency which, collapse. Which billionaire is starving this week? <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our special on Zimbabwe and billionaires. We just start doing people that bully us that happen to also be billionaires. Yo, fuck Broccoli Rob. <laughs> he farted last night at the party, ruined everything. Net worth is eight bill. <laughs> uh, but this week, uh, we we we, I don't know. Maybe our episode last week was a little slow because we were talking about four hundred one ks. But this week, mm-hmm. 
it's going to be different because we're talking about taxes. That's right. <laughs> it's uh, We're releasing this April 15, 2019. This tax day in the United States of America. Topical. So, yeah, you know, if uh, if you're listening, you haven't done your taxes, well... Uh, <laughs> Better apply for that extension. <laughs> and for our international listeners, feel free to ignore this entire episode. Yes. Yeah, if you're, if you're in one of the 36 countries that um, has just pays you earn, you don't file a tax return. Mm-hmm. Um, props. Like, yeah. Let us know that your country is better at taxes than our country for some reason. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about Scott Cook and Intuit, we're basically going to be telling you why the tax code is all fucked up in the United States. Mm-hmm. For anyone thinking and, to move to the U.S. that previously lives in one of those countries, listen to this episode. Trust us, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, and uh, actually, if you wait uh, for us to put up our paywall episode, we're going to teach you how to do pe- tax fraud. <laughs> the free shit is going to be the legal mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. but we gotta we gotta paywall the. Uh, the part where we tell you to go into a museum and ask for a receipt and then write it off as a business expense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, like, just to kind of start with a quick overview of taxes, and then we'll get into the bi- the biography of Scott Cook, the billionaire founder of Intuit, which makes TurboTax, QuickBooks. Uh, they do the Mint financing software as well. Right. Uh, before we get into that, I, I think we did just want to kind of mention what we said there about taxes. And I think it's something that I've noticed doing this podcast is that, you know, theft or rent seeking or whatever you want to call it, it's generally hidden in complication. Right. You know, like if you look at like what's complicated, like healthcare, uh, banking, real estate, taxes, all these things that are complicated are that way for a reason so that you can't really notice that people are just like taking your money to either solve the complication for you or at various steps along the way, you know, you're just losing money at different points. I mean, and so things that are simple are generally not very profitable. No, no. And the more complicated, the more corruption is involved in it, most likely to benefit those that have enough capital to misuse the system for their own good. Mm hmm. And Steve was mentioning there are 36 countries that do what's called return-free tax filing. And among them, this is a ProPublica story, mm-hmm. among them include Denmark, Sweden, Spain, I believe Australia as well. Japan. Japan. Yeah. Um, and, and so essentially what, what this is, is the idea that if you say in the United States you get a W-2, uh, the government already withholds taxes from that, so the government already has an estimate of what you make, so the government could just send you a tax bill or a tax refund estimate, and then you would just sign it, and then you'd be done. It would right. take less than five minutes. But TurboTax, uh, Intuit, as well as H&R Block and other companies, have lobbied against this very heavily. Um, and more than 95% of Intuit's revenue comes from the United States, according to ProPublica. TurboTax products made up 35% of Intuit's $4.2 billion revenues. Wow. So essentially keeping taxes complicated is a very profitable thing for Intuit and TurboTax to do. It's lucrative. Mm-hmm. And even like most most fi- the most common filing is a d- one W-2. Yes. So like most households are going to be one W-2 source of income. And for those people, well, especially starting next year with the t- the tax changes, um, they're probably just going to end up taking the standard deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, in other words, um, they could try to itemize some deductions, but it would probably come up to be less than the standard, so it'd make it pointless. Right, right. And for those households, the taxes should be really easy, but it isn't because of all the bureaucratization of TurboTax and into it and all of the H&R Block type groups. And because all of Scott Cook's kids need to be equestrians. Yes. All of them. 
yeah. need to have enough money to ride horses whenever they'd like. When you're going through your Schedule A, Schedule B, Schedule C, you're mm-hmm. looking at your 1099s, just think about how much fun <laughs> Scott Cook's daughter is having on her, ho- her horse right now. Yeah. Scott Cook's son, Scott Cook's daughter-in-law. Yeah. How, I mean, they, they need their horses. I mean, sure, you get the benefit of knowing that Scott Cook's family is fine, <laughs> but you also have the cost of all of these hoops you got to jump through on their online tax filing services. Yeah, it's 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 um it's crazy though because it um even even the amount of hoops that are put into it make it seem like it's easier than the alternative for some reason. The hoops that uh, his uh, daughter-in-law's horse jumps through. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> flaming hoops. <laughs> She's really good, guys. If they had to perform to us, perform for us, you know. Yeah. Like if you know America gets to see the cook, right. the Cook family circus, right. it might be actually uh, you know all right. This is, I mean, trade offs. Our taxes are paying for it. I don't I don't know why we don't get a show. You know what I mean? Like they have to jump through a flaming. Hoop. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. Into a pool filled with gasoline. <laughs> we we hold up the card. <laughs> I give that a ten out of ninety nine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, and so just like uh, to, to close this this out before we get into the biography of Scott Cook and why things are the way they are, uh, the uh, ProPublica one they cite a study that estimates essentially forty percent of filers or more qualify for this return free filing because again, like if you're working as an independent contractor or you make a lot of money, your return might be too complicated for this. Sure. But essentially, like Steve was saying, if you're just getting one W two from one job. The government already has an estimate of what you make, and they already check it when you submit your return to them. Right. So they could just send you that in advance and say, this is our estimate. Is it right? And then you go yes or no, and you're done. You know, So uh, for, you know, so again, 40% of filers or more might just be able to file online with the IRS for free. And the only reason that doesn't happen is because in 2002, the IRS went into an agreement with uh, TurboTax, H&R Block, among others, which essentially said that the IRS would not develop its own free filing program as long as these providers offered free filing to at least 60% of taxpayers. Oh, wow. And... They've taken that and essentially used free filing as a way to upsell people and say like, hey, you can get it for free. Oh, by the way, when you click on our product, you can't find the free filing anywhere. So less than 3% of filers take advantage of it. It's like the uh, Nathan for you, the free TV if you wear a formal outfit and you have to go through a small door and there's an alligator (laughs) in the room. (laughs) Like it's like it's still like a dollar or some shit, but you have to go through all these goddamn hoops. I mean, like, and they put, the, the, there's a free option, but that's how they brand themselves. They mm-hmm. say, hey, we're free, and then you click in, and they're like, it's $40. Yeah, I remember those ads where they just say, like, it's free. Free, 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 free. Right. And there's actually no asterisks or anything. Yeah. <laughs> of course there isn't. Uh, by the way, check out our paid episodes of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to upsell you. I learned that this is the episode that we're going to get sued on. I'm pretty sure... <laughs> That our critique of the tax system will lead us to have our IRS filings all foid. Yeah. Uh, everybody on this podcast will immediately be seeing an accountant <laughs> to make sure we're ready to get audited. Uh, hi. Yeah. Nothing's wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be sued pretty soon. Uh, but so I guess we can go through the biography of Scott Cook and, you know, again, how, how things got to be the way they are. And uh, the, my main source for this is this book called Inside Into It by Suzanne Taylor and Kathy Schroeder. And um, it, it's just kind of uh, general uh, authorized business biography where uh, they don't really give you much dirt. They just give you the general history. And importantly, they don't really tell you 
the actual equity structure, which I think is always interesting in one of these startup companies, is like how much the people who did the programming or the grunts actually got out of it. Right. Uh, but we do know Scott Cook is worth, according to Forbes, about $4 billion. Uh, he's born 1952, grows up middle-class suburb of Los Angeles. His father, a guy named Chester Cook, was a Navy lieutenant, former Navy lieutenant, and he was a construction equipment sales manager. <laughs> so he was traveling often. Right. And Scott Cook, you know, grew up a lot of times with his dad out of the house. Right, and like most people in L.A. with a hole in his heart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he vowed to uh, make families spend time doing their taxes together. <laughs> At the end, it's about family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> make people spend several hours every year <laughs> screaming at each other <laughs> about where the fuck is my schedule be. <laughs> um, but so his father's eventually the president of what's apparently called Crook Company Heavy Equipment Dealership. Oh, which, that sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> Crook heavy? That was <laughs> His father was the president of totally legitimate business <laughs> operation, heavy equipment company. No, no, my daddy's just the CEO <laughs> of Don't Ask Any More Questions.net. <laughs> my dad was a, a team leader of all of these unions. I regularly saw him speaking with people who seemed very intimidated by him. <laughs> Uh, A lot of my uh, dad's former uh, colleagues uh, have broken knees now. He was often testing the equipment (laughs) on people I had seen him lending money to earlier in the week. Heavy machinery. (laughs) Yeah, we always had bats at our house, but they ended up broken for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, my father was a terrible baseball player, but (laughs) man, did he collect those things. Yeah, he could not hit, but man, we just had so many baseball bats. He kept getting rid of them, getting new ones. (laughs) Go Ams. Uh, but so Scott's, Scott Cook, again, born 1952, middle-class suburb of Los Angeles, and he grows up kind of a smart kid. Um, and, and again, I listened to a couple talks with the guy. He's, he's clearly a smart individual. Um, he, he taught himself, according to this book, he taught himself how to program from different guidebooks. He wor- wrote his first computer program at age 15. He learned to code? Yes, he did learn to code. Uh, <laughs> that's how you become worth $4 billion. Um, he... he he learned, yeah, so he wrote... Initially, he went into coal mining. <laughs> <laughs> he got laid off. Realized there's no money there. <laughs> yeah. um, but so he wrote, the, he wrote this computer program age 15 in 1967, mm-hmm. and then apparently they went to the basement of a school two towns away so that he could run it on an IBM 1620 mm-hmm. computer at that time that was in the basement, you right, know, right. one of those giant 1967 computers. Um, so he's a smart kid. He's accepted to both uh, USC and Stanford University, and they go to USC because they get a better scholarship offer. His parents didn't pay his way into USC. It's not one of those situations. Um, <clears throat> well, again, it's in this book and uh, his talks, he's very cagey about finance. Oh, I, I think he's I? pretty clearly grows up upper middle class. Yeah. Um, but regardless, he graduates from USC with economics and math, a uh, double major, 1974. He gets a, a MBA from Harvard with a focus on marketing. Nice. Um, and then he joins Procter & Gamble. 
And at Procter and Gamble, he's the guy who decides, "Hey, let's put fluoride in the toothpaste." <laughs> you know what would get people really calm to fill out twenty pages of tax returns? What's that, Scott? If we just if we put fluoride into products that they have to use every day, oh. he tried to get them to put fluoride into TurboTax. <laughs> we could make the population docile. <laughs> you open the TurboTax box like, and it sprays fluoride <laughs> on you. <laughs> like, Scott, come on, come on, man. Listen, it'll be like glitter. It'll be a glitter of fluoride. And the moment you open the box, <laughs> he Scott, just his first job was just generating right wing conspiracies. <laughs> that was like representing most of his income. <laughs> the day TurboTax became a downloadable software was the worst day in his life. <laughs> but my fluoride. That would actually be a good strategy for Procter & Gamble, would just be like putting out uh, fluoride is bad for you rumors so mm-hmm. nobody notices that they're putting like fucking asbestos yeah. in the product. <laughs> People are really not going to pay attention to this shit if we, we just convince them the fluoride is bad. I mean, yeah, it sounds like a good strategy. Mm-hmm. But uh, so what he's actually doing there, he's hired as like an assistant brand manager for Crisco Shortening. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever use that stuff, but he's eventually. I've, yeah, I've used it to season uh, cast iron pans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, he's it, you can thank Scott Cook for that. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> it's like without you, I wouldn't have the worst cooking oil. <laughs> His suggestions were all like, what if we make the manual 400 pages long? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hear me out. I know you can bake a cake in like an hour. Yes, of course. But what if it took three days? Wait a second. And you had to pay us $50, <laughs> and we tell you we'll help you do it for free, <laughs> but then once you fill out all the applications, we will give you an immediate bill, and you will not see the free option. I mean, like it sounds like the rebate offers you see in like coupon books, we'll, you know? We'll, we'll help you deduct on fuel. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but so he's the assistant uh, brand manager for Crisco then he's promoted to the brand manager for Crisco and he in various talks he gives he always credits his time at Procter and Gamble is like teaching him about you know research and customer data and all that kind of stuff product development you know his wife was also in marketing I believe Right. Uh, he meets another brand manager uh, that, if you don't like how we pronounce things on the podcast, get ready. <laughs> uh, his wife's name is Signe Ostby. Oh, man, that hurts. So I, go ahead. What's right. your guess? I already looked it up. Signe uh, Ostby. Uh, how is that worse than mine? No, that that I think is right. <laughs> really? I played it before we started. Oh, I didn't hear Senya. it. Senya. Senya. Yeah. Well, like know, Enya, but with an S. Sean has always been worse than uh, me. You sounded like a fucking anime character. Yeah, it sounds like a person <laughs> from not the U.S., Sean. <laughs> I, th- I thought that was like a fucking monster from Evangelion when you said it. <laughs> yeah. It was, Shinji has to get is, yeah, in a mech. Yeah, her name is Shinji Akari. <laughs> <laughs> Shinji has to get in a mech and defeat uh, Scott Cook's wife. <laughs> But regardless, he meets a brand manager, they get married, they've been married ever since, and their uh, son and now daughter-in-law have horses, which we'll get we'll to. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, and so he's working in Cincinnati for Procter & Gamble, but eventually he convinces his wife in 1980 uh, to leave Cincinnati, and they both move to California. And he wants to get a job, or he does get a job with Bain & Company. 
And Bain and Company, you might know, we've we talked about this on the private equity episode. It actually wasn't at this time in private equity, but this was Mitt Romney's private equity firm where uh, he destroyed the <laughs> livelihoods of tens of thousands. <laughs> But uh, uh, his work for Bain is just kind of business consulting like McKinsey does, you know, where you come in and you say, hey, mm. here's what your business can do to be more efficient. Uh, I love consulting. It's just like, what the fuck do they do? Yeah. <laughs> and just say, you, you see the part of this ledger that says pensions? Let's just put a, like, what is, let's put an X through that. <laughs> what is this? Compensation? <laughs> So if we could move this a little lower, I think we could get the numbers much better. But yeah, so regardless, from 1980 to 1983, he has uh, what he describes, or no, what the book describes as a, quote, high-paying consulting job at Bain and Company in California. And so he works on a few different things. Apparently, he consults for an import car rental uh, firm. He does some consulting for a windsurfing vacation adventure business. Uh, he does consulting for Wells Fargo Home Banking, uh, which involved mm. telling them to uh, open fake accounts <laughs> oh. in their customers' name. When in doubt, open the account. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a later inspiration for TurboTax of course. to process fraudulent returns. Um, but yeah, so he does uh, consulting for Wells Fargo. And according to the book, eventually in 1983, he leaves Bain because uh, Scott Cook courts a cali computer component company uh which was called western digital it it, it was a computer it was a california computer component company excuse me uh but it's it's called western digital and he gets them to be a client for bain and um as part of that he was told he could be the manager of that account but he brings the account in and they put someone else on his manager so oh. he's like fuck this i'm, yeah, I'm yeah. done so that's what happened. Western Digital, the hardware company, they make uh, like uh, external hard drives and stuff, or is it a different Western Digital? I don't know. It's probably the same it's one. Probably the same, yeah. They, yeah. they make uh, uh, good external hard drives. Yeah, well, so thank God Bain put someone else on that account. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> he would have fucked it up. Yeah, he would. Uh, but so he leaves Bain in 1983, and like the way he tells it uh, in these various talks that he gives is essentially like his wife would he got this idea when his wife is complaining about doing the bills mm -hmm. you know like she was doing the bills and she's like smart but it's like a huge pain in the ass at this time 1983 and also in this around this time is when the personal computer comes into uh into play you know apple II is released 1977 ibm 1981 releases their pc mm -hmm. you know and then compact gets into this market and stuff and so the personal Macintosh is 1984. Right, right. So, you know, this, this market really starts yeah. taking off. Early age of computers, but mm -hmm. also a perfect time to create a software that would help people negotiate the tech system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so basically, like, his idea is like, okay, let's create some sort of software program that makes bill paying easier. Mm -hmm. And... Um, <clears throat> And so he goes to the Stanford campus and he's looking for essentially an engineer because he's like, he wrote this program, but he doesn't really know how to like do in-depth programming, sure, you know? Sure. So he needs some, he needs a programmer. He's an ideas man. He needs an execution right, man. Right, right. He needs someone to do the work for the yes, idea. Yes, he burned. needs, <laughs> he needs somebody that he's later going to fuck out of equity. Yes, of course. As, as is the classic not, Silicon yeah. Valley story. <laughs> and apparently it reaches like notch levels. Yes. Yeah. Well, of inequality. Yeah. Um, and again, like from this book, it's hard to get an actual sense of the equity, but there is like a minor screwing his co-founder out of shares thing that'll go through briefly. But essentially, 
He walks onto the Stanford campus, and the way they, they tell the story is he approaches a comp sci student and asks him where the engineering lab is because he wants to put up these flyers trying to hire a programmer. Right. And then this guy is a guy named Tom uh, Prulix, which I'm told is how it's pronounced. Uh, Tom- Who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> Some website said it was pronounced like Trulex or something like, or yeah, rhymes really. with Trulex. I don't know. Huh. All right. But anyways. He has uh, a brand name as his name. You're right, right. <laughs> Tom Clorox. <laughs> He's Tom like, Lysol here. We bonded because of my work with Crisco. <laughs> I really, I really bond part with of the brands. Deal is he, uh, Scott Scott Cook gets to name him. <laughs> That's part of the deal. You work for me, but I get to name you. <laughs> like a company ID situation? No, like your physical like, name. Yeah, I'm just will going to changed. brand you. <laughs> like Scott, it's not legal. <laughs> 60-40 split, and I'm in, I'm in charge of marketing your life. <laughs> <laughs> I went to school over this, so. Yeah. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I used to work at Bain. Yeah. Uh, but so 1983, Tom Prulix. Uh, so yeah, this uh, computer size student that he meets on campus shows him where the engineering lab is, but then he asks him, like, hey, why are you looking for a program? And he's like, I'm trying to build a personal finance software. Right. And so he says, oh, I'd be interested in that. So apparently, um, Scott Cook interviews some applicants, but actually this guy he ran into at first was the most qualified, qualified and uh, the most enthusiastic. So essentially, they start um, what's called Intuit. And the idea is that there are accounting softwares uh, that are existing right now, but they're all very complicated. Mm. So they call it Intuit because it's intuitive, you know. I thought because so, he was Intuit. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, interesting thing again from this book and from his uh personal stuff we don't know how much startup capital he is but he does give this talk where he kind of talks about where the initial money came from and he definitely had some money from bain he borrowed some money and so he had a significant amount of startup capital one way or another he was the one scott cook was the one paying the bills while tom prulix uh kind of just worked for a salary and some equity Literally, how are you making ends meet? How much total capital had you raised to, to work for those three years? Well, we went through lots of sources. Um, uh, Did your told, parents give you a loan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, borrowed money from my parents. So I, I used my profit sharing and retirement from Bain. I used my savings, uh, these lines of credit. So you really went all in. I mean, you took all your savings, you yeah, went into yeah, debt. Yeah, uh, borrowed um, from my dad's savings, his retirement fund. Then we, we went out to get venture capital. Uh, we were looking for $2 million. Um, that didn't work. So one of the guys in the office said, well, this isn't working. Let's go talk to some rich people. And I said, well, that's good, but I, I don't know any rich people. <laughs> and he said, well, I know two. So we, we talked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Emphasis on the part where he borrowed money from his dad. Right. <laughs> Do you want to play the he other one? What was the other one? There's two borrowed from my dad quotes. Here's the other one. Those two uh, rich guys, they wouldn't invest anymore. I'd burned through, at this point, my savings and my profit-sharing plan from Bain. I'd burned through the the uh, um, uh, lines of credit uh, and credit card. I'd kind of burned through all that. Uh, borrowed from my dad. Uh, and it looked like that was all going to go down. <laughs> Computer, enhance the part where he says borrowed from my dad. <laughs> But yes. He gave the whole rundown there, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, how do billionaires get their money? Yeah. Borrowed from my dad. Sharecropping? (laughs) 
<laughs> but so what he's talking about there, and, and again, the book goes through this, is essentially uh, his job is to sell it, and then Tom Prulix is supposed to write this program. 1984, he does write the first version um, of what's called Quicken. I think they called it Quick Check originally, mm-hmm. but then they changed the name to Quicken. And this is like a personal finance software that's supposed to be very uh, intuitive, easy to use. Apparently, it would allow customers to write checks, like put a blank check on their printer and then print onto the check, uh, maintain a check register, add up income and expenses. And the idea is if you have regular bills, you can actually use this software to just kind of print your checks every month and save yourself some time. So it is pretty cool and uh innovative in the sense that it's not like a complicated accounting thing there's just like a a check on the screen you like fill it in you know so uh tom prulick spends about a year like working his ass off building this thing and then in 1984 they launched the um the dos version for ibm pcs i believe apple II version comes out 85 but importantly what he's talking about there is they have a version and they have like these stopwatch trials where they like get random people to use other accounting software versus their own and right. show how much faster. And they approach more than 20 different venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and all of them turn them down. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was like, <clears throat> uh, and then he mentions there, one of their early employees has like a rich father-in-law and a rich former um <laughs> Rich former CEO at his old company, so right. they borrow 100. And, they borrow 151k from those two, yeah. uh, but they don't actually get VC money uh, for the longest time. So essentially, like their early history is, they have like a fine product, but they don't have any VC money, and they're just kind of like burning capital, uh, you know, like hoping and waiting for their product to catch on. Yeah, they're rich kids. They got a whole bunch of good ideas, but no real execution at this point because they don't mm-hmm. have enough money to get the product out to people but like the way he talks about it is so defeated <laughs> like in all of the borrowed money from my dad quotes he's just sighing so heavily just like uh i, I borrowed money from my dad and uh then these other people didn't give us any money and uh and now i'm a billionaire like, did do some some things he wasn't proud of <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he sounds like the guy that had to suck dick for the fire this has a grimace on his face the whole time <laughs> No, my life is not not like that movie, Midnight Cowboy. (laughs) I borrowed money from my dad. I didn't Uh, borrow money. I earned it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so it's like, essentially, they have, from 1984 to 1985 is their rough period. Like, in 1985, there's, and this is their, you know, founder mythology or whatever. 1985, they have seven employees. And then in 85, they hit a six-month period where they have to stop paying salaries. Oh, wow. So three of the employees quit because, of course, there's no salary. So 1985, there's six months where they're not paying salaries. But essentially what happens is... They managed to get some banks, including Wells Fargo, where he was, you know, consulting for for Bain. They managed to get some banks to buy the product, and the banks give them some money for their little personal finance software, because that way the banks don't have to develop their own, and then, like, Wells Fargo gets exclusive license to sell it in California, you know? The banks are kind of doing a shitty job selling it, but that gives them some capital. And then with that capital, they spend like 125k on a direct mail campaign, mm-hmm. where they put like in um, you know PC Magazine and some other uh, magazines of the day. They put these like ads with you know testimonials and like a uh, 1-800 number and coupon <laughs> codes. And this actually finally gets them the word of mouth. After like after you're done reading the article about Tie Fighter. In PC magazine, uh-huh. uh, PC gamer, <laughs> like you know, there'll be some like, oh yeah, and also there's this new tax filing software. 
what what year is he doing the mail-in um shit uh 1986 okay they do so, the campaign okay, just yeah. in time <laughs> just in time for the holiday season it's the uh the ad has like special text that you can only see if you have taken the recommended dosage of fluoride. <laughs> <laughs> it was all part That's of my a, plan. Yeah. And a free packet of fluoride. <laughs> you get two faced with it. It's the only part of it that's actually free. <laughs> but so essentially what happens by the 1986 holiday season, they're like, you know, selling this thing hand over fist. It's primarily spreading from word of mouth because it is better than competing products at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so an important thing happens like 1987, they have 13 employees, 1988, 30 employees, 1989, 100, uh, 100 employees. Um, and just something that happens here that, that we go through with like a lot of these Silicon Valley garage startups is essentially you have, you know, people like Scott Cook is the capital and then you have the programmers and the programmers are working 70 or 80 hour weeks actually developing this thing. And then a lot of times they get fucked out of money. Uh, like I said, in this inside into it book, very vague on how equity actually worked here, but I did just want to like do one other thing. Uh, One other story from this is like. They build a DeskMate version of TurboTax in 1988, which if you hadn't heard of DeskMate, I hadn't either. No, but it was, it was like some other competing operating system that was obviously thrown by the wayside. Hmm. But apparently it was like extremely hard to... Uh, yeah, it was an old OS that has since been discontinued. Extremely hard to program for. But I think DeskMate offered them like a million dollars guaranteed to build a DeskMate version, you oh, know? Oh, really? But so... Of course, it's like Tom Prulix and I think one or two other engineers have to like program for DeskMate. And so they have like, you know, tons of sleepless nights to the point where uh, Tom Prulix ends up in the hospital with a blood ulcer because he's just been working nonstop, you know. Uh, And then some other engineer from the time is quoted in the book as saying, quote, sometimes at night I sit at my computer and cry. I am so tired, but I just have to keep working. Oh, man. Uh, He told his mother that at the time. How did they get a record of it? The mother snitched? I I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any information on your son? Well, I do have this one story. That's so sad, though. Yeah, yeah. very incredibly sad. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the engineers nicknamed uh, Deskmate. They nicknamed it Deathmate <laughs> because it was just Solid. impossible to program for. And then mm. they sold none of it except for sure. the million guaranteed they got. But, you know, it, it is just kind of like it's an interesting story where, of course, Scott Cook is the one worth $4 billion. And then one, the closest thing the book comes to enlightening us on the equity thing is that uh, there's a story of a dispute between Tom Prulix and Scott Cook, and what basically happens is Tom Prulix uh, believed that when he stayed on in 1985 with no salary, because like we said, they were not paying salaries, so four of them stayed on with no salary. Right. He believed that when he stayed on in 85 with no salary, he and Cook had essentially restarted the company together with equal equity, except for an, a small amount set aside for Cook's initial capital investment. Cook believed that Tom had been compensated with a large but not equal equity grant in 1986. <laughs> so they had to get an independent mediator, and then they gave Tom a couple th- hundred thousand shares. Sure, and then sure. That was good enough. But the point is, you know, today Scott Cook is $4 billion. And to the best of my knowledge, Tom Prulix is not at a billion. He's got several hundred million. I'm sure sure he's doing fine. But he's the one who actually did the 80, 90 hour work weeks, um, you know, programming the thing and put himself in the hospital with an ulcer. He busted his ass and he got one fourth of the money that uh, Cook went away with at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And then, you One know. One of us learned Deskmate. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't you. <laughs> and, you know, that's even, like, compared to the actual early hires. Like, the other engineer who's, like, crying at his desk every night. Right, right. Because, you know, like, the engineers apparently requested, like, office furniture, just futons so they could sleep next to their computer. Sure. Yeah, it really, puts, really puts the average employee of Intuit today's situation into perspective <laughs> <laughs> nearly no equity um, working 40 hours a week or more yeah <laughs> but regardless uh what happens is uh they they launch this product and then from 87 onwards they're like tripling their revenue every year wow. so it's very popular spreads by word of mouth and um their their only like real conflict during this time is uh, Microsoft is busy uh, squashing every other software like a bug in their fucking windshield. Microsoft, <laughs> what are you a semi truck on the freeway of life? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but so Microsoft gives them like some lowball acquisition number in 1991. They turn it down, and then Microsoft releases Microsoft Money in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was just kind of like from my reading of this. Had Microsoft really put this on the front burner, they probably could have just destroyed QuickBooks or Quicken. I whoa, say. whoa, whoa. Are you telling me Microsoft didn't put in the extra mile and make something that they <laughs> made good enough quality to beat a competitor? All I'm saying is if they had moved Yogi's dad from Excel to MS Money, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing this episode today. <laughs> I was hoping that Microsoft money was Microsoft actually printing currency <laughs> and just has just goes back to company credit. It's like a company town right, for right. for the Microsoft employees yeah. that you just pay them in store credit. I think that's how it started. And they went, you know what? We could make some other money so from this too. What if we didn't break the law? <laughs> Microsoft money is a key plot element in Mad Max 3. <laughs> <laughs> the Redmond faction. It's like money, and- but better. <laughs> Um, but so regardless, Microsoft Money is released 91 and, uh, go M's. Yeah. And, and Quicken, uh, they compete with it. Uh, they release their windows version two months later, but they undercut Microsoft on price. They have these $15 real mail and rebates. They're focusing on this full time. Whereas Microsoft's got, you know, a whole bunch of things on their plate. Right, sure. Um, and, and they have this kind of loyal customer base. So they're actually able to secure, I think like 70% of the market share. Wow. But uh, and then you know both Quicken and Microsoft move into preloading their software on PCs, um, and uh, they get I think about forty percent each of PCs come with either the Quicken or the uh, the Microsoft money. But regardless, Quicken IPOs in 1993. Morgan Stanley uh, takes care of that one, and Scott Cook sells five million dollars worth of stock on IPO day, but holds another 140 million at the time. Wow! And uh, so yeah, he's uh, extremely rich when they IPO. And uh, and then I guess the the only other story from this time before we kind of move on to the rest of the the scandals is uh, essentially Scott Cook was actually very hesitant to go into the tax business, but uh, Tom Prulix, the guy who really did most of the work here, uh, insisted that they go into the tax business. He was trying to convince them in '89. Instead, they didn't go until '93, uh, so they actually had to pay a much higher price. But the point is, you know, we were mentioning today, TurboTax is like 35% of their revenue. So it's like, this is their real growth industry is like keeping the tax code complicated. But what essentially they do is they buy a company called Chipsoft, which uh, Mike and Evie Chipman had uh, made this TurboTax soft. Sorry, Chipman? Yeah, that was their actual name. Their names were Chipman. (laughs) Okay. It's another name. Uh, So somebody is just great, like... 
there's there's some like obscure Silicon Valley thing <laughs> where it's just, you get to brand people with <laughs> new names. That's Purelex. Purelex, when, Chipman, Cook. When Scott Cook bought the company, he branded them. <laughs> yeah, it was just like a crazy lasted like a year or so. <laughs> where, you know, like people were just like kind of companies. So you just, and I it's know. like sharecropping. It's like Prince and Carmen Electra. <laughs> people don't like to talk about that period in Silicon Valley <laughs> when they were like, optimizing wait, last names. <laughs> But regardless, uh, th- these guys, uh, Mike and Evie Chipman, they, they build TurboTax. They sell their company for $25 million to an investment bank. Then the investment bank sells it to um, Intuit for $232 million in September 1993. And since essentially ever since 1993, Intuit's main job has been keeping the tax code complicated. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This company that makes money from making tax software for the people benefits from complicating tax law to make it easier for the people but somehow also make yeah. them more money yeah a lot uh, seriously a lot of the rhetoric about taxes being complicated i think just comes from advertising yeah i think so from intuit I mean, like, and people the, you know his family's all marketing based but it makes sense that like i mean taxes certainly are complicated but it would behoove TurboTax to be like in every advertisement you know what's hard taxes yeah it's like you know what you hate doing right right our right. taxes right right like specifically in yeah yeah it's in real life and it like it feels like almost like an infomercial quality where it's like you know the hardest thing about your day the hardest thing about your year taxes <laughs> well, i wonder if there's just some sort of turbo that could fix all your problems <laughs> TurboTax. I think like so the, the, what we were playing is Scott Cook gives various talks to I think Stanford University and, and one other uh, talk there but yeah so like he addresses that like at one point he says you know like taxes are so complicated or something and it's like well, d- dude you know why that is. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot it's like a lot of a lot of like sort of Silicon Valley platform origin stories are like uh, like I or my spouse was just like really struggling with this thing. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a a new software platform <laughs> that continues to make it complicated. Right. But right. it's like our, t- you know. But it's our complication. I'm just imagining the Tinder origin story. It's like <laughs> my wife kept catching me cheating on her, <laughs> and I was like, "There's got to be a better way to meet anonymous strangers." You know, there <laughs> there is like a Russian uh, app that's for threesomes, I think. Mm-hmm. And he, the guy that created it, was because <laughs> his significant other was like embarrassed to want to try a threesome. He's like, "You shouldn't be embarrassed. That's a natural thing." So he created the app to uh, help people that want to be in threesomes get together. And I mean, like, it makes sense. Most good ideas come from you know seeing a problem and fixing it but uh they're yeah. like they're, they're really a, lot of, a lot of these stories are just like so based around like a, a narrow legal definition of what's possible in some industry mm-hmm. that they just ex- ruthlessly exploit yeah that's so like the or the uber, like the uber ceo who i hope we do one day on this show mm-hmm. um i remember a talk where he was describing the origin of uber and he's like one time i was late for a meeting waiting on a taxi and i was like there's gotta be a better way so I decided to destroy all labor law. <laughs> <laughs> if this one thing's easier for me, the world can get as complicated as it yeah, needs to. Like I had a tough time once, <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to do something, so workers shouldn't have rights. Yeah, but that's like one step away from supervillain status. That's all that is, right? At one point, I got pricked in the finger by a little thorn, and from then on, I decided to cut all of the trees in the area. Like right. that's, Or like I was afraid of needles, yeah, so yeah, I had to yeah. d- design this... Like 
impossible machine that, that gets all this information <laughs> right, from right. Prick of Blood. <laughs> I was waiting for a taxi, and I thought, what if instead of paying this guy money, I paid some other company <laughs> money, and he just uh, breaks even after maintenance and expenses? If that even. Yeah. But I do like the idea of a Russian building a three-way app. Like, that's the kind of app you think of when your GDP falls 50% in 10 years. Just kind of like the world's going to end. So let's make a three-way app. Like late, late capitalism apps. <laughs> What's free, but also not free? But yeah, so to talk about like what Scott Cook has kind of said on the topic of you know the government doing taxes and everything here, he, he does give this kind of interesting talk to Stanford students, and one of them asks them, like, first, how do you ethically do political lobbying? And his answer is like such bullshit, where he's like, well, you know, our job is like Congress people, they deal with such complicated stuff all the time, and we have to explain things to them, you know? Like, they need the truth to understand these topics, they don't always know all these complicated things, so we have to, like, explain the truth to them, and that's why we hire lobbyists, which, you know, not true, but... Yes, uh, one on the right. Uh, how do you approach political lobbying from both a business and an ethical perspective? Yeah, how do we approach political lobbying, lobbying from a business and ethical perspective? Um, yeah, we do, we do... Uh, I'd say we don't do much, but we do. There's one issue where there's a lot of confusion. So we try hard to uh, help the legislative staffs of the legislatures <laughs> hear the, uh, the other side of the story. Um, and because they hear, boy, when you go to a congressional hearing, and I've attended hear a few. the other side I've of the story, a briefcase full of, Congress, of money. I've attended a few hearings. It is amazing how hard it is for a legislator to do their jobs. So it could be a committee hearing on uh, banking regulation having to do with options trading or something. And you've got these legisl legislators up there who are lawyers. They have no clue. They're being passed sheets of questions to ask by their staff. And then you see the, the people who testify literally lying through their teeth. <laughs> okay. They do a little bit. They, they did like 11 million, wasn't it? In mm -hmm. lobbying, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On lobbying of Congress in 2018, I think. It is amazing how hard it is for a legislator to do their job when they are not currently sitting in a steakhouse with us, <laughs> <laughs> ordering off anything they want at P Peter Luger's. It is amazing how much they fuck up their jobs when that is not taking place. But yeah, I mean, that's just a completely disingenuous answer. And then uh, there's the other drop where he talks about the government doing your taxes. People who want the tax, the government to do taxes to basically do what we do. Um, the, uh, and, and 36 and other the countries do. Appeal. The government would collect all this data that they don't actually have, but in theory they could somehow collect data on they do your have the income, data. your deductions, whether you paid somebody for child care. They'd have to collect data on your student tuition. And then they would do your taxes for you and just send you a bill saying, here's how much you owe, send it in. So that sounds really attractive on the surface, and that's basically what we were trying to build, is to collect all that data so when you arrive we can just tell you what your refund's going to be. That sounds, that's good for us to do, because we're not the enforcer. The laws are enforced by the federal government. And so there's a, our uh, system works where people report all their income, and out of the fear that if they don't report it, they will, you know, have a jail term. So what happens when somebody knows that the government can't find the income you got, that the government doesn't know about? It? So think waiters and tips. What percentage of tip income gets reported? And he says, like, tip income zero gets reported. And the idea is essentially if the government sends you a bill, if they underestimate, then you're not going to tell them. Right, right. Okay, so 
you know, we've said a couple times, there are 36 countries <laughs> that do what he's describing. Yeah. And many of them are like large advanced countries. Mm-hmm. They're uh, with comparable levels of corruption to us. Right, mm-hmm. right. But they can still do it. Well, he literally yeah. says, hey, what we're doing is something the government could do but can't because they're not us. <laughs> yeah, he's just being like... In- inconsistent in like answering that question for some reason 95 percent of intuit's revenue comes from the united states of america <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not shocked about that yeah oh what was it something like 42 percent of their revenue mm-hmm. comes from their consumer line which includes turbo tags right. Right, right. quickbooks and that stuff mm-hmm. so yeah i mean they stand to lose a ton yeah from the irs using information it already has right right to estimate and then report what you owe and then just do your return for you basically and if you get a refund or you you owe more and they decide that right for free who's the ultimate middleman it's like everything you hear about like when bernie sanders says like every other advanced country does single payer health care this is a thousand times easier than that mm-hmm. right right this would be single payer for your tax refund basically I mean, outside of so yeah of course we can do that right outside of cook getting screwed over like, would it save the people money as well in the long of run? Of course. No. Hours. Yeah. And it would save them hours well, of their lives, too. Yes, yeah, so your time it empowers you in a lot of ways, I think. To right, just have, like, oh, okay, this is why. All right, fine. It, it, I think it would prove to people how easy most people's taxes really are to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> if and you just have one or two W-2s and that's all your income, I mean, right. you're. It's, it's really easy. It's just intuitive. It's saying, like, how economy? difficult it is. And we could we could finally end that TurboTax program where Scott Cook makes you change your last name <laughs> yeah. after you do your taxes. Well, especially after like in starting next year when the Trump tax law right. comes into effect, and there's a lot of you, there's a lot of bad things you can say about that. One thing that it does is uh, simplifies the tax code to where you basically have no reason not to use the standard deduction. Mm-hmm. So all the people that were itemizing, like about, probably about eighty or ninety percent of them, won't. It'll just be pointless uh-huh. since they'll just take the standard deduction. Right, right. So for all of those like ten ninety nine filers and like gig economy people, mm-hmm. they even even they will just be like, all right, this is just really simple now. Yeah, and that's interesting though because it does show like if you're listening to this, you might have seen the ProPublica story just this last week about how the House just passed a bill that would make it illegal for the IRS to offer this free e-filing. So, and you know, uh, TurboTax and I believe H and R Block had spent like 11 million in the last two years lobbying on this, and so clearly they have a sense of urgency because like Steve said, the standard deduction is going to go up. A lot of people are not going to need this softwares as much. So of course it's like right away, we have to make it illegal for the IRS to offer this thing so that people still have to use our software. Right. Yeah. I think that just raised the stakes of yeah. making it so that IRS couldn't do this. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, you know, it's, it's become even more apparent that taxes are actually pretty simple to do for most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're a, r- a rich person with a really complicated set of LLCs or something like grub stakers, oh, yes. you'll still need, you'll still <laughs> need to get your, you know, your accountant or get H&R block involved. But for the average U.S. household, I, I mean, it, it should take under an hour. If that, or the IRS could just do it for you. I mean, either one sounds better than paying fucking Scott Cook to have children that ride horses professionally. <laughs> so, like, the main benefit is just knowing that Scott and his family are okay. I mean, that's really all that I'm getting from this. Yeah, yeah. that's all I'm getting out of it. I want, I want them to keep riding. I mean, <laughs> I wanted them to keep going down that old town road. That's why I file it with, tar- with TurboTax. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, you want to make sure those horses are yeah, enslaved. I'm, I'm an equestrian, uh, you know, <laughs> aficionado. 
I do like how TurboTax has that part where you can uh, write off the medical bills for the ulcer you get programming TurboTax. <laughs> Uh, but so essentially, like, and we'll we'll get back to the 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 tax story that that just recently happened. We'll we'll close out with that. But just to finish the biography here, uh, Scott Cook actually stepped. We, we mentioned the IPO in '93. Scott Cook steps down as CEO in 1994. He gets a guy Bill Campbell to be the new CEO. Scott Cook since that time has kind of been a, a board member, a significant player, but he's not doing the day to day operation. He's just sitting on his pile of money. Sure, you know. Um, <clears throat> Scrooge and, McDuck over there. Yeah, and so Microsoft uh, offers... Uh, Money pit deduction. <laughs> um, and I had to widen it this year, so... <laughs> maintaining your money pit, that's like, it's, it's a deduction. You wouldn't know that if you didn't use... TurboTax, TurboTax. yeah. Um, but so in 1994, Microsoft tries again to buy it, uh, Intuit, and they make a serious offer. They offer like $1.5 billion. TurboTax, or sorry, Intuit is all in. Uh, but then the Department of Justice under Bill Clinton, they actually block it, and Bill Gates decides, I'm not going to fight. So he walks away from the deal. And it is kind of important to know, and you know, we'll get to this when we do our Microsoft episode, but the Department of Justice, uh, in uh, either 94 or 93, Bill Gates made a quote about how bankers are like dinosaurs. So a lot of financial people were very nervous about Microsoft moving into banking and electronic money ordering and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So... They put a lot of pressure on the Department of Justice to make the monopoly antitrust case against Microsoft. So it is just kind of like it's a it's a story of how antitrust enforcement actually works, which is that major players in an industry will put pressure on DOJ when their position is threatened. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Are you trying to say that Scott Cook is involved in politics, Sean? <laughs> no, but he denied that. Did we play that? You get involved in politics. I'm sorry, try that again. Why have you decided to get involved in politics? I'm not. <laughs> That's easy. Uh, the question was why did I decide to get involved in politics, and I'm not, at least unless uh, something I didn't know about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like how he didn't read that The Nation article about how he gave Max personal donation to both Mitt Romney and Harry Reid right, right, right. in 2012. A couple of winners. Yeah. No, and again, we'll go through this, but on the tax side, into its entire business model is lobbying. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, there's a reason the students were laughing when you said that. I just love the end of that. He's like, unless there's something I don't know about, like just what a perfect weaseling out of the reality that is, you know you're involved in politics. <laughs> His Quicken software was auto-printing those checks that he sent to Mitt Romney and Harry <laughs> Reid. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he did his own taxes and (laughs) include those deductions. But so, you know, again, just to kind of bring you up to the present, uh, Quicken kind of moves through the 90s. They take a big hit on the dot-com burst. Interestingly enough, they were like, they had their hands in um, Quicken Mortgage, we'll get into, are now called Quicken Loans. Uh, They bought the the company called Rock Financial, and then they turned it into Quicken Loans. And then after the dot-com bust, they like, we have to get out of mortgages. They were in the insurance market for a bit as well. We have to get out of all these things. So they sold Quicken Loans back to the management team, and now it's an independent company. But essentially, they were in mortgages and insurance for a quick minute, and uh, they got out in time. But I did just want to mention, um, in 1999, Quicken is sued for the first time for fraudulently collecting and selling online user data. 
because like by 1998 they launch quicken.com and then they become you know very heavily involved in the internet space and since that time there have just been like semi-annual consumer lawsuits <laughs> about what exactly they're doing with your data and it's especially concerning when it comes to taxes because that's your most personal information you know yeah, if you yeah. want to do identity theft like you get somebody's tax information they they also own the company Mint. Yeah, they buy that in two thousand nine. Um, uh, also sells aggregated user data that they promise and have released some ports saying like, no, it's anonymized. It won't be able to be tracked to any specific user. But you have to wonder, since I mean, these are all just these are like very specific facts about consumer spending. Hmm. It, it also has like regional data and data on like household size and everything like. Uh, that's that'd yeah, be quite it, a breach. Yeah, extremely Someone, personal information yeah. that I don't want Intuit making money off of. <laughs> right, like there's something like uh, TurboTax, the program, it stores all your passwords for financial institutions. Like when you like link your bank account to it, yeah. it like stores your passwords for financial institutions, your bank account, all that stuff. And there's actually no way to use the software without it doing that. Oh, really? So, it, you know, there's like all this kind of disturbing stuff. And um but I, what I wanted to talk about next was essentially there are two whistleblowers from TurboTax who uh, talked about how TurboTax has been dealing with stolen identity refund fraud. Mm -hmm. And this is a particular thing where people quite literally steal your identity and then they file for a refund for your refund with the IRS. Hmm. And then if, you know, the IRS doesn't check, they send you a, a they send them a check for X thousand dollars and mm -hmm. then they run away, you know, and they'll make hundreds of these fake applications with just whatever social security numbers or other identifying details they have right, for right. various filers. And so um, this is from Cre uh, a blog called Krebs on Security broke this story in 2015. Um, Robert Lee, uh, no relation to the Confederate general. <laughs> uh, Can you confirm that? You looked at the 23 and me. Uh, Robert Lee, who uh, famously lost uh, into it a ton of money at Gettysburg. <laughs> uh, so he was a security business partner. This is from Krebs on Security uh, blog. A security business partner at Intuit's consumer tax group. Uh, he left in 2014. He says his team at Intuit developed sophisticated fraud models to help Intuit quickly identify and close accounts that were being used uh, by crooks to commit massive amounts of stolen identity refund fraud. And so basically he says that he developed this software for them, but they refused to implement it. And uh, the reason was they found that when they implemented software or that when they reported uh, stolen identity refund fraud to the IRS promptly, the uh, people who were doing stolen identity refund fraud would just move to into its competitors. So essentially the idea is like, if you fill out this return and you check the box on TurboTax that says, hey, pay the fee as a percentage of the return, then if the IRS approves, you know, say a $2,000 return, then 50 of that goes to TurboTax. So they can actually make money on stolen identity refund fraud. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Lee kind of goes through this a bit. He says, if I sign up for an account and file tax refund requests on 100 people who are not me, it's obviously fraud. Uh, we found literally millions of accounts that were 100% used only for fraud, but management explicitly forbade us from either flagging the accounts as fraudulent or turning off those accounts. <laughs> And he says, you know, they were uh, sending data to the IRS about this, but then what would happen is once they noticed that their revenue stream was going down during peak time, uh, he said there was a time period where we didn't deliver that information at all, and then at one point there was a two-week two delay 
from getting the information and delivering it to the IRS. Really? Um, there was no technical reason for that delay, but I can only speculate what the real justification for that was. And then, like, one other thing that these two whistleblowers said is that they had essentially set up a TurboTax honeypot where, you know, if you're using, like, clearly, if you're using multiple social security numbers or, um, or if you're using an existing social security number right. uh, on a different account, you know, then clearly that's probably fraud, you know, and all these other tells of fraud. But so essentially what they did was a honeypot program for TurboTax where if they suspect fraud, they can put you in a window where you, it looks the exact same and you're filling out all the data, but it doesn't actually submit it to the IRS. So you can waste the fraudster's time and try to figure out what they're doing and, you know, isolate all these suspected fraud cases and review them by hand. So they build this whole honeypot program and uh, TurboTax, or sorry, Intuit explicitly forbids them to implement it for TurboTax because, again, they are making money from stolen identity fraud. Right. And here's another quote from uh, Robert uh, <coughs> Lee. In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe. But what we'll acknowledge, that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expatiate on its disadvantages. So it's just Robert Lee, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from the horse's mouth. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I liked when he uh, whistle blew on into it, but I uh, didn't like when he uh, defended the uh, white supremacist <laughs> confederacy. Wait, read, from that, read that back? He was anti-slavery. It's actually a pretty profound quote. Yeah. Well, it was an anti-slavery quote, but he still like what was it? He was right. Virginian, yeah, so yeah. he wanted to defend Virginia. In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but what will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expatiate on its disadvantages. Hmm. So, into it, you're saying is anti-slavery. <laughs> It's interesting. Yeah, that, uh, apparently, uh, I, and I mean, I wouldn't have guessed. The internet tells you this is what Robert Lee said. He he wanted to defend Virginia by getting thirty thousand people needlessly killed at Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> he also said we should live, act, and say nothing to the injury of anyone. It is not only best as a matter of principle, but it is the path to peace and honor. I mean, like. I, l I looked up Robert E. Lee quotes and then looked up Robert Lee racist quotes and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> so I just went with the quotes, guys. But yeah, okay. So essentially, and that's your story about, you know, they're not taking action on stolen identity refund fraud. And it's just kind of funny where it's like Intuit makes all these different cases against the government, you know, doing this auto refund uh, or auto ta ta re uh, free file. Mm -hmm. And one of the cases that they make is that, quote, taxpayers could face new privacy and security risks, unquote. And it's like, the government already has this information point, if you right. file a W-2, and clearly Intuit is a major privacy and security risk yeah. because they don't give a shit about stolen identity refund fraud, and they will sell your information to whoever, you know, and they make money off stolen identity refund fraud. But so one other thing I wanted to go through is this um, uh, tax professor uh, writes in The Hill. Um, he writes an opinion piece that uh, it says essentially um, Intuit is violating the free file agreement. We mentioned with the IRS in 2002, they've got this agreement uh, that recently the House just passed a bill that would make it the law and permanent where the IRS will not develop this uh, free file uh, e-return system in exchange into it is and H&R uh, Block are supposed to offer 60% of taxpayers free file but the thing is they violate the conditions of this 
where essentially if you go, according to this op-ed from a tax professor in the Hill, um, federal tax law contains strict requirements pertaining to this, the disclosure or use of a taxpayer's return information. Uh, the law commands that tax return preps, including Intuit and H&R Blocks, solicit and receive, quote, knowing and voluntary taxpayer consent before disclosing or using taxpayer's return information for any reason, including marketing paid services unrelated to the return. Um, state laws contain similar requirements. And the point is, they may routinely be violating these requirements. Uh, Intuit's practices... Uh, if a free file user with TurboTax from the IRS homepage land, uh, goes from the IRS homepage to TurboTax free file version, uh, they immediately have a, uh, by clicking create account button, you agree to TurboTax's terms of use. So even to get from the IRS to free file and TurboTax, you have to agree to their terms of use and have, and it, you click it and it acknowledges you've read their privacy statement. And then there are three documents which essentially says that, um, and if you don't consent, they don't let you use sure, it, of course. course. Yeah. Intuit's uh, consent waiver violates the requirement uh, that they made with the feds that says tax preparers are prohibited from conditioning receipt of federal tax services on a taxpayer providing consent to disclose and use of his or her tax returns. Hmm. So essentially, this agreement that Intuit has, where you have to click and agree, right. that's explicitly forbidden from the 2002 agreement, but nobody gives a shit. Huh. So... Um, so when you when you click the create account, um, basically you have to agree that Intuit has the right to do whatever they want with your data, and also they uh, strip your right to trial by jury. So you have to go into arbitration oh, if you have really? any problem with Intuit doing this with with sort your data. Of, sort of what we did with Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Good reads. Yeah, but so it is just kind of interesting where like. You know, and it's it's kind of mentioned throughout here is that uh, only three percent of taxpayers use this free file in a, in any given year, and and from this Hill op-ed, of that three percent, less than half use free file again the next year. Which oh, well. you know, I mean, as we mentioned, they're using free file to upsell, but it also they make it confusing, hard to find, and uh, not as convenient, obviously, as their um as their their paid versions. But, you know, it is just kind of disturbing where it's like they can enter this this uh, agreement with the IRS and then m immediately violate it by forcing people into arbitration and uh, saying, hey, we have the right to do whatever we want with your tax data. Right. And and they, of course, directly market to free file users where they'll email any free file user the next year and be like, hey, you want some more money yep. this year? Try our paid version. You and know? if you're just kind of going through your free file without... <laughs> Paying close attention, you'll probably accidentally click on one of the, one of the upsells. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean the the internet has always been ripe with people uh, falling for scams, but this certainly has been eye opening when it comes to like, oh hey, we're gonna give it to you for free. Actually, it's not gonna be. This free is like when you're you know when you download, <laughs> when you download something, you accidentally install the the tool the toolbar yes, or something. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had. McCaffrey downloaded eight times a year because I fucking don't click the goddamn Adobe update or thing to say not to add fucking smart scan or whatever the fuck it is. Every time. Every time. And I'm like, when did I get McAfee on my goddamn computer? And I was like, God damn it. And I have to uninstall it. Every, every fucking time. Yeah, you can wind up with three toolbars. Yeah. And in like a weekend, McAfee's like, hey, you want to pay me? And I'm like, I didn't even want you here. I hate when I install McAfee and then it makes me take bath salts in order to log into my computer. <laughs> it makes me do a bunch of research chemicals and then say the N-word on the internet. That's the fluoride, Sean. <laughs>
Um, but so according to ProPublica, Intuit spent about $11.5 million on federal lobbying from 2008 to 2013. As we mentioned, I believe they spent over $6 million just on the previous two years. Um, there's a story, there's an NPR Planet Money, which talks about this uh, tax professor in California named Joseph Bankman, who's a Stanford law professor, and he designed Ready Return for California in, I believe, 2005, mm-hmm. and Intuit, like, spent over a million dollars lobbying against it, and, you know, got all these, um, they would have Intuit people follow him to his talks. Oh, really? You know, and, like, spy on what he was doing, and, and these sorts of things, and they essentially, Ready Return actually was passed and exists in California, but there was no marketing budget so most people in california have no idea that they have the right to file their taxes for free right. and like less than 90,000 californians used it last year wow. though they report 98 percent satisfaction rate which is pretty crazy <laughs> for like that's anything. like absurd i know first tech software <laughs> i mean it makes sense <laughs> it was free right mm-hmm. yeah it's the best seasoning but and i guess like Essentially, the story that we just heard was that uh, what's called House Resolution 1957 just passed uh, April 9th, 2019, on a voice vote, um, and it's headed to the Senate now. We'll see if it passes the Senate, but as mentioned, this will uh, forbid, by law, the IRS from offering this ready return free refund, and... um, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, civil rights hero John Lewis is a sponsor, is the main sponsor, along with Republican Mike Kelly, which hmm. is one of those depressing things you run into in American history. Sure, sure. You know, a guy gets his head beaten on a bridge in Selma for civil rights. and then is this for- his new idea of good trouble? <laughs> <laughs> so you can pass a controversial bill. It makes you really think about why we need into it. It wasn't an omnibus spending bill, but it did include a lot of provisions, right? Well, it was called the Taxpayer First Act of 2019. Um, so, I mean, there was a there probably was a rationale, right, that um, right. Uh, a couple more progressive Democrats signed on, or s- said I. Right. Well, so John Lewis took, like, Ocasio-Cortez and uh, another uh, Democrat aside and essentially uh, convinced them at least to not publicly oppose it. Because there's like another part of this bill that makes it so that the IRS can't um, harass uh, lower income taxpayers. Katie Hill of California is another one he talked to. It, it makes the IRS uh, can't harass low income taxpayers who owe money with private debt collect- collectors. And I, I guess there are some other good parts of it. But it, and so basically, what they they decided on was that oh, we'll try to bring free file to the to the floor later. I think is the idea, but it okay. it is just really suspicious. Where yeah, it all know. seems odd. Yeah, but this is going to the Senate, and uh, we'll we'll see. But okay. I just can't imagine them stripping this provision from the Senate. No way they, they should. Yeah, I wonder what Bernie says once he gets to him. Bernie says, "Look, I agree with Robert Lee, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite Virginian. Robert Lee had it right in 1865." <laughs> Straight Bernie Sanders turn. <laughs> Bernie Sanders reaffirms anti-slavery position. And so I guess like just one other thing I wanted to close out from these management talks that Scott Cook gives. Um, well, before we get there, though, I yeah. want to talk about his shit-ass kids because right. he's got three of them. Annie, David, and uh, Carl. I think Carl with a K. <laughs> uh, Carl with a K. And uh, there's not much on Annie or David, but uh, Carl is uh, the same age as myself. He's 29 years old. And the reason uh, he's uh, being brought up in this moment because he's married to actress phenomenon 
Kaylee Cuoco. Mm. Yes, that's right. The Bazinga Mistress to end all Bazinga Mistresses. The real Big Bang and the Big Bang Theory. Interestingly enough about Kaylee Cuoco is she married some random tennis player for three years and then divorced him. And then in May... He couldn't do his tax returns, right? <laughs> in May, he she divorced that person and started dating Carl at the end of that year, uh, which is no big deal. But uh, in her Wikipedia, it says that she played tennis when she was younger, but then stopped at age 16. But then she also rides horses a whole bunch, and that's why she loves Carl Cook, because he's a equestrian. As a, yeah. I, It's funny mm. how I know that the word equestrian means horse rider and provider and shit. It means person you don't want to be trapped in a conversation <laughs> with. <laughs> but like when you see the word equestrian written down, it does seem something very official. It does seem like, oh, it's got an E and a Q in it. Ah, this guy seems important. But I, then I've noticed you've insisted on not saying equestrian, just saying horse person. I, like I like saying horse person. It just seems nice. But um, I will say that all of my research about billionaires and their families and relationships come 100% from like online celeb gossip rags like every time i've had to look this stuff up it's you know some sort of like entertainment guam.net that i find this information on um carl cook when he was a teenager went into a professional equestrian slump and was quoted as saying it sounds silly but i didn't know how to do anything else I really didn't want to go to school, so it was either that or be and be unhappy or really get good after writing. And the, the kind of quotes you get to give after your father fucks the programmer <laughs> out of fifty percent of the equity. So apparently, uh, this guy Carl and uh, his uh, now wife Kaylee met at uh, Hits Coachella which is a horse uh, uh, festival in Indio, California. <laughs> you want to make Coachella worse. <laughs> Let's put horses in that Coachella shit. Coachella on horseback. Exactly. Um, and so they met Beyonce there. has to re- perform on horseback. <laughs> I mean, that would be a good show if you ask me. They have to, they have to cancel Coachella because Modest Mouse gets kicked in the head by a horse. <laughs> I just love There's the just notion. Shit everywhere. <laughs> you think Modest Mouse is performing at Coachella? <laughs> um, but they met at this H I T S Coachella, which is a horse thing, and uh, uh, they were both both focused. This is from uh, Noel Floyd. Five things we learned from hanging out with Carl Cook and Kaylee Cuoco. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate all these articles, but uh, apparently both were focused on the horse show. And when a mutual friend introduced them, they both shrugged it off, and then. My interpretation is Kaylee figured out who this person was, and then Carl had a pull to maybe give it another go and hoped, hopped on his mini bike to bring a glass of champagne to Kaylee in her barn aisle. Unfortunately, she hates champagne, mm. but needless to say, the rest is history. <laughs> so, well, got a couple of horse kids, horse fucking all day and night. Um, well, when I heard that she was into tennis and then horses, I thought self-made woman. <laughs> Mm. That's at least a seven on Forbes skill. <laughs> I think so. Seven point nine, if you ask me. But yeah, so that's his uh, his son has married Kelly Cuoco, the Big Bang. Kaylee theory. Cuoco. Kelly Cuoco. Oh, and the best thing about it is Cuoco in Italian means cook. So she's already got the family oh. name. No need to rebrand. Per- yeah, Co- Cuoco in Italian means means really complicated tax return. <laughs> Scott was like, I don't have to do anything with this. No, no, we didn't lose jack shit. <laughs> Well, one thing I find funny is that uh, this uh, CheatSheet.com just drags Kaylee Cuoco. He goes, proof that Kaylee Cuoco is a bad actress who got lucky with the Big Bang Theory. He just runs through her entire uh, fucking uh, filmography and says that she sucked. Josh Lesme, 
April 14th, 2019 of Entertainment Cheat Sheet. So, listen, my research isn't that valuable, but let's be honest. It's the dirt that people want to hear. And uh, Kaylee Cuoco went from fucking a uh, tennis player that was rich to fucking this random dude uh, who... Western. Who, random horse dude who uh, seems to enjoy horses. It's so funny. Like I didn't want to go to school. I wanted to focus on horses right, full right. time. In like one of the articles, the person describing uh, Carl Cook is like, you know, he was talking to like the other horse trainers, and it was like he doesn't even seem like a writer. He seems like one of the engineers here, and it's like, listen, far be it for me to uh, discredit someone's effort, but if I had nothing to do but ride horses all fucking day. I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to show up and go up and get out of there. It's all I do. I, I'm not going to be an asshole all day. Um, but everybody in the family rides horses, their mm. mother, all, all their siblings. And, um, you know, his uh, mom. They'll sing- be they'll be ready to get away from the mobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting is that, like, if you look at some of the uh, horse championships that Carl has won, mm. I don't know, apparently that's the thing. He's made like a couple hundred grand off just horse riding, and like all his competitors were stuck doing their tax returns. <laughs> I mean, like it does feel kind of like I mean, this person clearly doesn't need any of his money. But then again, I don't know anyone in the horse riding world that needs the championship money. But mm-hmm. maybe it's my own biased look at it. Um, his uh, mom, there, Signiosbi. Uh, she like started a couple of companies as well, but they're very vague and there's not much information on them, like Software Production Corporation or something like that. And there's not really any other information about his siblings on the internet. So, you that say Signe Osby, I just think of Shenji thinking, I mustn't be afraid. <laughs> oh, we were able to track down the, oh, that's right. the Cook household mm-hmm. in Woodside, California, yeah. one of the wealthier suburbs of Silicon Valley. Say yeah. the address, we'll beep it. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, uh, there's a there's a website of a guy that um or a company rather that just that's their whole thing they just figure out where celebrities and also billionaires live right right yeah, yeah. it's apparently Isola did is about worth about six billion six million six million yeah not mm. six billion not yet but yeah the, uh, the, I think he has another house in San Francisco so it's not his only house the guy who uh does that website where you can find out where billionaires live is welcome to come on this podcast yeah. anytime we Let's would love to talk to him. He does a valuable public service that uh, when there are mobs of people and you need an address to lead them to, <laughs> we'll, will become very valuable. We'll put it on the Twitter. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, we'll, we'll put it up on the Twitter. It seems like an interesting website. It was a good find, Steve. Um, but so, any anything else on Quoco? No, that's everything on her. I, I just wanted to, one other thing Scott Cook uh, did is, uh, besides, you know, keep our tax code complicated, is he gives these talks about, you know, management strategies. And he had one little quote I found interesting about um, the Israeli Air Force. Oh. So I was just in Israel, took the family, and went with another family. And we spent time with a number of Air Force, uh, Israeli Air Force, um, retired generals and some others. We just... Uh, uh, delightfully acquired a company that was rooted in Israel, and the CEO is ex-Air Force. Um, and the Israeli Air Force dominates the sky over there. There's not even a challenge anywhere in the region. They just have crushed every opponent. Um, and you ask them why. And then a bunch of the US Israeli Air Force have gone into business and done spectacularly well. You ask them why, and they'll, they'll say a couple of things. But one thing they say is we have this culture of self-critique. After every mission, we'll do a training mission a day, and after that training mission, we get in a circle. Everyone has to come up with the three things that they could have done better in that mission. Everyone, including the general. 
all come up with a list of three, and they tell their list of three things that I could have done better. And they, they, and they also say, if your list is not the real list, you know, we're Israeli, we're in your face, we'll tell you. No, I don't think you got it. <laughs> so it's this culture of constant self-critique. If you build that into your regular rhythm, it's not surprising they became the best, arguably in their kind of combat, air combat, the best in the world. I've got some familiar with Israelis that like to critique. One, one of them has a special place in my heart. Uh, <laughs> is he talking about Sheldon Adelson? I don't know. That host is a chode. But yes, uh, if uh, you are looking for uh, business management uh, techniques uh, to use against your competitor companies that you are also blockading from receiving medicine, <laughs> might I recommend listening to the Israeli Air Force? <laughs> But I mean, it's just like, it's such a bizarre quote because it's like, first of all, you went to Israel with your family where your horses have more daily calories than the right, fucking Palestinians right. in Gaza. Um, but but second, it's like, what has the Israeli Air Force been doing since the 80s? It's just bombing, what, Lebanon, Gaza, you know, I mean, it's like, these yeah, are not, not moving targets. Right. This is not, they're not going Jerking to- each other off. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we circle up and- Everyone has to jerk off three people <laughs> in the room. That's not the right list. Even it's six inclu- people. Including the general. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. And we're all just equals. And then after somebody comes, we have to talk about how we could have made them come faster. <laughs> and you have to be honest. Dominate. You have to dominate. They're Israelis. They'll get up in your face and take that load. <laughs> and with <Go> that... <laughs> This has been Grubstakers. Uh, I'm Yogi Bywall. Steve Jeffries. I'm, I'm, I'm Sean McCarthy. I do just want to say that Culture of Critique is the name of an anti-Semitic book, so I think we can close this episode by uh, saying that Steve Cook is a virulent anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night. We'll be back next week. Star of the television show The Big Bang Theory went to Instagram apologizing for comments that she made to Red Book magazine about feminism. Kaylee Cuoco... Uh, said that she enjoys cooking for her husband and that she was, quote, never that feminist girl demanding equality, unquote. And she clarified what she meant to HLN's Mara Raphael. Why do you think there's, like, such a strong reaction to being a feminist or not a feminist I think there's just a strong reaction to Kaylee talking. Kaylee needs to shut up once in a while. Kaylee stop. needs to just close the mouth and stop talking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you keep that, talking, you're going to say something wrong eventually, always. Right? And that's the thing. With that quote, whatever the hell I said, it, it would not, you never want to offend anybody. Everything I say in my life, now from this point on, something's going to offend somebody and the other person's going to love it. That was a three and a half hour conversation that you saw two sentences with a dot, dot, dot. Uh, What it meant was I felt privileged to be able to not only have a career and be as powerful as women are today and also be at home and feel like a homemaker and make my husband dinner and all those things and to be able to have those things and that's what I meant by that. And if anyone really wants to be offended by that, I can't believe. Anyone that knows me knows exactly where my heart is. And that's, that's what I have to live by because it's hard. You can't say anything. But it's kind of nice that though now you can like tweet a reaction or post a reaction yeah, that is and nice. get it out there what you really think. And you have a second chance that maybe you didn't That is to. true. Social media is kind of great and bad like that. You're right. It takes your quote or Red Book hasn't even come out yet. And they're already knowing all this. You know, it's like, oh, my God, that cover hasn't even come out yet. But you are able to kind of – and things like this is nice where I can say, it's not what I meant to say. It's not what I meant to say. It's not what I meant to say.